Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. All right, this time I want to invite you to uh, find a Bible. If you don't have one, you can, of course, pull up a passage, um, uh, pull up our passage on your phone or on your computer, and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series on what the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. And we find the fruit of the Spirit listed on Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And I'm going to try to get out of the sun for a second. Because you're stuck with me for a while. Um, and we're going we're gonna to just ex- continue exploring uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Paul, as you have probably come to realize, is utterly realistic about the human condition. On the one hand, he admits that we are a total mess. And yet, uh, on the other hand, he insists that Christians, as new creations in Christ, have the Spirit of the living God in them, which means that even in their mess, they can experience in this lifetime what Francis Schaeffer has called substantial healing. Substantial healing. It's not total and complete healing that happens when Jesus returns, but it's also absolutely zero healing. There's something that we can expect called substantial healing. And Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22 that if we have the Spirit, if we have God the Holy Spirit, then we will grow as surely as a grape grows on a vine. Now, That growth may be slower than we want it to be. That growth may be not as obvious as we want it to be. But God's people will grow. We just will grow. And in particular, this growth will look like uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Last week, we looked at the word goodness. And today, we're going to be looking at the word faithfulness. The Greek word that Paul uses in Galatians 5.22 is pistis, pistis, which means faith. It just means faith. That word means faith. But like goodness, the word faith is sort of vague. In fact, faith here could mean one of two things. Faith could be, uh, number one, an act of trust, our faith. And Paul uses this word pistis in this way a lot. In fact, even in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, I live by pistis, I live by faith or trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. So that's Paul's approach with the word on that. But there's another way that this word can be used, and Paul uses it this way as well. Uh, if the first is our act of trust, the second meaning is being the kind of person who is worthy of trust faithfulness, being the kind of person who is faithful themselves to God and to other people especially. Now, which is it? Is it the first or the second? Well, as always, we want to allow context 
to make our decisions. And so I want you to notice how all the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit that we've been looking at are about a certain kind of person. And frankly, that person looks a lot like Jesus. And in fact, I believe these all describe the life of Jesus. And it makes sense that the God the Spirit would make us look more and more like Jesus. And so Jesus is faithful. He is faithful. He's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of trust. And so what we're going to be doing is taking a tour of the Bible on what it means when it says faithful, faithful. Um, starting with Paul's closing prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. And so hopefully you have that open. I'll read the text and you can follow along with us this morning. This is God's word. It says this, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, that's all of you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Lord, would the words of mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come, that you would come and that you would break down the physical distance that we all have right now. And Lord, by your word that you inspired, that you would um, empower my preaching right now and open our hearts so that we would worship, so that we would see you and that we would worship you in this. Would this not just be another intellectual exercise, but would this be an act of worship? And this is our prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the Hack family, this uh, summer has been unlike any other summer, and I'm sure that's also true for you. It's particularly true for us because this has been a summer without a local pool. And if you know us, you know that the hacks are all about the local pool during the summer. Uh, and this means that, that, that Josie and I are trying to figure out what summer looks like without the pool, but it particularly means that our kids, our three boys, are trying to figure out what summer looks like without a pool. In my family, what that's looking like is a lot more bike rides. I mean, we are, we always took a lot of bike rides, but this is like a whole nother level of bike riding. Uh, my older boys, my two older boys, they go off on, on themselves. They go by themselves. But my youngest, who's four, he needs mom and dad, mom or dad, or mom and dad to go with him. And so he asks all the time. Speaking personally, he's asking me all the time. So much so that lately I have noticed that I am over-promising and under-delivering. Over-promising and under-delivering. He'll ask and I'll say, sure, sure, sounds good. But then inevitably I'll get distracted or maybe I was already doing something and I continue to do that thing and I say, maybe later, maybe later, maybe later. And then the bike ride gets pushed further and further and further and further away until it's too late and it doesn't happen at all. And this happens in my life in more ways than just bike rides. In my sin, I have an overpromise, underdeliver problem, which is how trust slowly erodes in any relationship. Uh, my former professor, he tells a similar story when he was a young dad. Uh, he has three grown daughters now, but uh, he, as he reflects on 
um, their childhood and him being a young dad, he regrets that they always came to him reminding him of his promises. But dad, you promised we would go to the park. Dad, remember you promised we'd get ice cream. And we might think that's harmless. Oh, that's just being kids. But he made the profound point that I've never forgotten and that I keep bringing up in my own sermons is that that reminder from his children and from mine is a symptom of eroding trust, isn't it? In a world without sin, we wouldn't need reminders. In a world without sin, our yes would be yes, our no would be no, and there would be no reminders. But that's not the world that we live in. We live east of Eden. We live in the age of unreliability. I almost spent a few hours in prep for this sermon researching polls. Uh, There are a lot of polls that are done these days. And I wanted to find a poll that showed how the American public is, is, is having a problem trusting others. That... That, that somehow I could find a poll that would prove that we have trouble trusting others. And then I just stopped and I said, you know what? We don't need a poll to prove that. That's like proving that the, the grass behind me is green. And besides, if I did share a poll, we wouldn't trust the poll, would we? We would say, who's funding the poll? See, this is the point. We just know deep in our bones that we are living in an age of unreliability. Our news feed feels unreliable. Uh, Columbia journalism professor Michael Shudson, he recently said this, quote, One gets the sense that the pitch of anti-press sentiment is at its most fevered it's ever been since the founding of the Republic. This is a professor who studies the history of journalism. Our Nifi, unreliable. Even our stuff that we buy feels unreliable. We read labels on our food and we, and we wonder, what are they hiding from me? Um, we assume the people making the things we buy are cutting corners at all times, don't we? Um, I recently talked with an HVAC repairman who was in our basement, and he told me that our 30-year-old furnace is still nicer than the brand new furnace that he installed just that morning before. You see, we don't even trust the things that we buy, that they have our best interest in mind. And so if that's true about our furnace, how often is that true about how we feel about our relationships? We live in an age of unreliability, and so we are hungry, I think, for relationships that are faithful, faithful relationships. And we have a deep hunger for something trustworthy, someone trustworthy. And the absence of it, I think, only makes us more and more hungry. We may be cynical that we can never trust, but that doesn't remove the hunger for real trust. So that's, I think, where we are. And I just talked uh, just the last five minutes about, about this as if it were a modern problem. But the truth is, this is also an ancient problem. And the reason it's an ancient problem and a modern problem is, frankly, because it's a human problem. It's a human problem. In fact, uh, Ever since our parents broke trust in the Garden of Eden, we have had trust issues. It's a human problem. And it always has been since the fall. You see, even the early church had trust issues. The church in Galatia, where Paul talks about faithfulness being a fruit of the Spirit. The church in Galatia um, was, in Paul's words, quote, biting and devouring each other. Biting and devouring each other. Now, that's not a description of an environment of trust. 
And we also know from Galatians 2 that in this early church, in this very early church, uh, the tables, the tables upon which they would eat and fellowship, remember in the ancient world tables meant way more than they mean to us, were divided among ethnic lines. Peter himself, Peter was letting this happen and in fact participating in this ethnic division within the church. Why? The, the scriptures say it clearly. Because he was afraid, because of fear of another group of people that would, that would not like it, that he was eating with the Gentiles. Again, that is not what I would call a climate of trust. And so it's in that setting that Paul says, God the Spirit wants to grow in you faithfulness. Faithfulness. God wants to make you trustworthy. Worthy of another person's trust. Worthy of another person's faith. I love Christopher Wright's definition of faithfulness. He says, this is their word over the long haul. Someone who keeps their word over the long haul is a faithful someone. Now, how is that possible? Uh, Two things need to happen. First, God must reveal his faithfulness to us. And second, we must receive God's faithfulness. See, God is faithful. And we must first see that for us to even grow in faithfulness ourselves. See, this is why we have a Bible, by the way. The reason we have a Bible is because the Bible is the story of God's faithfulness. It's the story of God's faithfulness. It's been said that you can, there's two different ways that you can look at the Bible. The first is this is a rule book to prove your faithfulness to God. And the second is that this is a story that proves God's faithfulness to us. The rule book approach, let's just spend some time on that. It's common and even understandable because that is how all religions work. They have a book with ethics. And because people notice correctly that the Bible has ethics and the Bible has obedience and calls for it and calls for faithfulness, it does, uh, they, they see that and so they reduce the scriptures to that. But in doing that, you are indeed reducing it. It's a half-truth because the larger picture of how scripture functions is that the Bible is the story first of God's faithfulness to us in our faithlessness. It's how he has touched down in history time and time again, showing and showcasing his relentless, unending faithfulness culminating in Jesus to his people who need rescued, who need rescued. The calls to obedience and to faithfulness in the scriptures, which Paul himself does often, is always in response to God's persistent, unearned, gracious faithfulness. Dane Ortland, I love what he says. He says there's two ways to obey God. There's obedience for God's love and there's obedience from God's love. Do you, do you see the difference? The Bible is the story of God's faithfulness and our faithfulness always is from God's faithfulness. Our faithfulness is always from God's faithfulness, not for God's faithfulness. And if you've never read the Bible this way, um, I dare you to read the Bible this way. I dare you to ask two questions whenever you're done reading the scriptures. Whenever you're done reading it, I dare you to ask these two questions. Number one, how does this reflect 
How does whatever human portrayal is being portrayed in the scriptures right now, how does that reflect the mess I've made or the the mess that we've made? And then two, how is God's faithfulness on display in that mess? Ask those two questions and you'll get a sense of how the scriptures work as a story of God's secret rescue plan, his faithfulness to us. In fact, this is how Paul reads the Bible. He said, Romans 3, verse 3, he says, quote, What if the Israelites were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, he says. Paul understood that the Bible was the story of God's faithfulness. He knew that God grows our faithfulness first by showing us his faithfulness. I want to take just a look at a few places in Paul's own letters where he draws on the faithfulness of God to compel our faithfulness. Starting in our passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, God tells us, um, this, this passage tells us that God reveals his faithfulness to sustain you. Paul prays over the church at the end of this letter, and he says, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And now may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, I can hear their hearts, and I can even hear our hearts right now responding to this prayer. How is that possible? Paul, you're crazy. Do you even know me? Does God even know me? He must have messed up in calling me. But then Paul replies to this response. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. God's grip on us is stronger than our grip on him. Outpaces our faithfulness. God is faithful. He will sustain you. And now I want you to turn just a few pages to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. That's the next letter called 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. This verse tells us that God reveals his faithfulness to strengthen you. It says in this verse, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? The Lord's faithfulness strengthens you. So when you are weak, when you feel weak, which is all the time, If your heart is sensitive to your sin, if your heart is sensitive to your struggles, which getting the Spirit of God does that to your heart, when you are feeling weak, the Lord's faithfulness kicks into play. It strengthens you. It doesn't disqualify you for His reach. It actually qualifies you for His faithful reach. His faithfulness strengthens you. And then in this same verse we see that God's faithfulness extends not just to strengthening us, but also shielding us. It says to protect you from the evil one. You know, we have an enemy who hates Jesus and who hates the people of Jesus. Do you believe that? It's true. But God here promises to be faithful to shield us. He sustains us, his faithfulness. He strengthens us, his faithfulness. He shields us, his faithfulness. It's all his faithfulness from beginning to end. Do you see it? The beauty of God's faithfulness is that it outpaces our attempts at faithfulness. We're not saved, in other words, by the strength of our faithfulness. We are saved and sustained and strengthened and shielded by 
His faithfulness. I think about this often when I climb, when I rock climb, um, especially at the Scioto Audubon Park. Um, this, there, if, you, you, if you've been there, you know there's a big public uh, climbing wall there. And as long as you have your own harness, uh, you can climb even by yourself because at the top of a few of the routes, they have what's called an auto belay, an auto belay or an automatic belay. Um, and these are designed to catch you gently if you fall. And for some reason, I have very little faith in these devices that hang up there. I'd much rather have, and I've talked to others who feel the same way, uh, I'd much rather have a person holding the rope that keeps me alive than some metal device that looks like a tape ruler that sits through the rain and the snow all year. But that doesn't stop me. I still, I still get on it. I have a sliver. Now, I, I'm talking like a millimeter of faith in this thing. But it's enough for me to clip in. And see, that's how God's faithfulness works. It's objective. It doesn't adjust according to my weak faith. It doesn't adjust to my strong faith. It just is. It just is. His faithfulness just is. When God's people sing of his faithfulness in the Psalms, they're singing of something that is. It just is. It doesn't adjust. God is entirely faithful. He is entirely trustworthy worthy even in the moments where we feel uncertain. But if we clip in, even milder faith, we experience his faithfulness. Do you want to grow in faithfulness? Do you want to be a trustworthy person? The first thing you need to do is just clip in to God's faithfulness. Just clip in. It takes a millimeter of faith. This is why God gave us his word. It's why God gave us the word in flesh, Jesus, who is the yes to all of God's promises. We don't need to remind God of his promises. We see Jesus, who is the yes to all of his promises. And God sent the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we would taste and see his faithfulness. Christian neurobiologist Uh, Kurt Thompson, he says that the way God made our brains is to to grow through mimicry. Mimicry. It's interesting. We repeat, apparently, what we see. And this is true with bad things, and this is also true with good things, like faithfulness. Like faithfulness. I mean, many of us didn't see faithfulness modeled to us by mom or dad or by whoever. But God is faithful. God is faithful. And what we need most, and God knows this, he made us this way. He made us this way. Well, is to see it modeled to us. And that's why we have the Bible. We have the Bible because it models to us the faithfulness of God. And we need to see it. And then we grow in our faithfulness, not just by seeing it, but by receiving it, by receiving it, receiving it ourselves. How do we do this? Well, first, we study God's story of faithfulness. Uh, John 17, 4 has an interesting uh, prayer. Jesus prays uh, to his Father in heaven. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. This is right before his crucifixion. 
He says, having done the work that you gave me to do, Father. So the first way that we grow in faithfulness is getting to know what it is that God is calling us to do. I mean, if we don't have ourselves immersed in the story of God, then we aren't going to have a clue as to what faithfulness even connects to. Chris Wright again, he says, Faithfulness means you know what you really believe, whom you really love, and what you are ultimately committed to. Faithfulness means being sure of what you want to live for and what you're willing to die for. Do you know what you're willing to die for? Well, I think Jesus' prayer can be a comfort and a challenge. Comfort is he's praying that prayer about us. He's praying it about you. He came exactly on mission, and he did exactly what his mission was. And because he knew this, he was able to sort of walk through life with boundaries. In fact, it's pointed out by Pete Scazzaro that, that Jesus has this unbelievable ability to, to, to enter into people people's lives, and also to keep walking, even when people ask, how is he able to do that? Because he has a deep awareness of his mission, of what he has been called by the Father to do. And the way we do that is by getting saturated in God's story. We read and we study the scriptures, not so that we can prove our faithfulness to God and hopefully get his love and his smile, but because we have his smile. And now we want to know, what does faithfulness look like? We read and study the scriptures. We sing songs like we are today. We're gathering like we are today. We're engaging with each other uh, through the week. This is how we do this. We, we, we study God's story of faithfulness. And then number two, and this is huge, we play our part in God's story of faithfulness. Jesus tells us a story in Matthew 25 about three investors. I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this story. I'll just read it. A man goes off on an extended trip. This is Matthew 25. He called his servants together and delegated responsibilities. To one he gave $5,000, and to another 2000 and to a third 1000 depending on their abilities. Then he left... Right off, the first servant went to work and doubled his master's investment. The second did the same, but the man with the single thousand dug a hole and carefully buried his master's money. After a long absence, the master of those three servants came back and settled up with them. The one given five thousand showed him he dealt investment, and the master commended him, Good work, you did your job well. He used the word faithful. And from now on, be my partner. The servant with the 2,000 showed how he had doubled his master's investment. His master commended him. Good work. You did your job well. From now, be my partner. And the servant given 1,000 said, Master, I know you have high standards and, and hate careless ways, and you demand the best, and you make no allowances for error. I was afraid that I might disappoint you. There's fear. And so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound down to the last cent. And the master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the best? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most, and get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him into the outer darkness." 
And so Jesus tells this arresting story, this parable. Why? Because he's telling us today, as then, that we are each given a role in God's story. And Jesus tells us that we are all to play our script, our part, with abandon and with risk. Abandon and risk, no matter how big, no matter how small, you are to play your part with abandon and risk. This past Christmas, I got to see Handel's Messiah live. And the whole time, I was watching two instruments, the trumpet and the timpani. The trumpet and the timpani, or the kettle drums. Not because they were doing a lot, but because honestly, they were doing nothing. I was noticing them um, with the crew, but they weren't doing nothing. They were just sitting there the whole time. But then towards the end, the third movement especially, these parts came out and they started to, to sort of flourish and open up. And these musicians got into it. They were given very little. They were given very little, objectively speaking, compared to the lead singers, to be sure, and others. But the little they got, they played with abandon and with risk. They left it all on the court or the stage in this case. And that's the beauty of faithfulness, friends. God doesn't really care about success. He cares about our faithfulness to the script part that he gave us. What the world needs right now, more than anything, is not ingenuity or awesomeness or impressiveness. What we need is, what what the world needs right now is settled faithfulness. I want you to make a list of all the relationships in your life, and I want you to ask, what does faithfulness look like in these relationships? What does settled faithfulness look like in these relationships? Uh, The professor, author, and farmer Wendell Berry, he calls this settled faithfulness to the people and to the community that, that you're a part of. He calls it the membership. The membership. Matt McCullough, he writes, and I'm quoting him, Barry's characters show what it is to belong to a community, by which I mean more than the welcome and affirmation typically communicated uh, by the world by the word community today. To belong to a community, according to Barry, is at its disposal. Uh, to have given over all you have to be used for whatever your community needs. It's a submission of yourself, your identity, your interests, your ambitions to the needs of those to whom you're bound. That's the membership. And that's a settled faithfulness. Jesus has done this for you. He has submitted himself to the needs of those to whom he is bound, which is his people, which is you, which is me, which is all who've come to him in faith. He has submitted himself to the needs of those to whom he is bound. And so you are freed, Christians. You are freed by the Spirit of God to do the same in your life. Faithfulness is an invitation in view of God's faithfulness. It's not a burden. It's an invitation. It's a beauty. It's a glory. I mean, just think, what if our church became known for our reliability, for our faithfulness? I heard a teacher once say uh, that whenever he needed something done at school, he would always ask a track kid or a wrestler. Um, For whatever reason, he found these students to be more reliable. I don't know if that's objectively true or not, but I want Hope, our church, to be the track kid of Columbus. (laughs) Our whole marriage, in other words, um, Josie and I have always had two cars. We've always had two cars. And whenever one of us needed to go a long distance, we always asked and requested 
the most faithful car. That makes sense. I want our community, our church community, to be that car. To our neighbors, to our colleagues. I want us to be that car. And God the Spirit is going to do this for us, friends. He is going to grow this. He is the master of the vineyard. We are connected to the vine, Jesus, and we will grow faithfulness, just as Jesus is faithful to us. Lord, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would grow faithfulness in us. We need it desperately. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.